How often do you say or think, I wish I knew then what I know now? Because you know if you knew now what you knew then, it would have altered your life. Perhaps you said it about moving to a new location or, or marriage or a new job or having children. Perhaps if you knew then what you know now, you would have never moved. Or perhaps you would have moved sooner. Perhaps if you had known then what you know now, you would have never married. Or perhaps, I don't know why that's funny. Or or perhaps you would have married sooner. Or or children. Perhaps you would not have had any children at all. Or perhaps you would have had them sooner and in greater number. Now that is funny, but it's often this lack of knowledge that's a, a source of regret for us. It makes us want to rewind and do things over again because information changes us. It changes the way we look at the world. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we act in this world. When the apostle John wrote this gospel, he knew and he understood much more than he knew or understood when these dramatic events were taking place all around him as he walked uh, with Jesus. At the time, he, like the other disciples, he often acted out of ignorance. He spoke out of ignorance. He thought out of ignorance. And so though John was physically present for this triumphal entry, he actually missed it. He was there, but he missed it. He missed the triumph of it. He missed it because he was limited by his own agenda. He was limited by his own understanding. He missed it because John was not open to the the big possibilities that exist when the Messiah is, in fact, the Son of the living God. So this morning, I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to regret not having been present in the moment. We've got to be in a place. We must be in a place where we can see triumph. And experience the triumph that is ours in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. When you found John chapter 12, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. The gospel of John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again, the truth that it is. We thank you for the transformation that can take place in our lives when the truth of your word is joined by your spirit. Within us, change happens. So Father, we pray for that change, that transformation this morning in our lives, that triumph, the victory that you have for us. 
So we just submit ourselves now to you and to the authority of your word. We open ourselves up to your good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure most of you here know the story of the triumphal entry. I've preached on it 24, many times. This is my 24th Palm Sunday as a pastor. So a lot has been said. We know it's a really important event because all four gospel writers tell this story. But this morning, I want to look at the story just from the perspective of John. Because at the time that he wrote this gospel, John was at the youngest, 75 years old. And at the oldest, he was possibly 93 years old when he wrote this. So it's safe to say that John was an old man. No offense to the 75-year-olds here. But he's an old man. And he had had opportunity to read the other gospels written by his friends and his, his colleagues. And so he has this unique opportunity under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to add to those gospels, to, to fill them out, to give a different perspective, to put emphasis in a different place. So what I want us to do first is to consider what we would not know if we only had the gospel of John, what we would not know. And then I want us to think about what we would know only from John, because I think in that place, that place of difference is where you and I are going to find this transformation for our lives, this triumph in our own lives. I think that's the place where John found it in his own life. So, John's account of this event is the shortest, only 11 verses. If you only had John's gospel, you would not know that Jesus had given very specific directions about where to find this donkey upon which he was riding. He told the disciples the exact place where they would find it. He told the disciples what to say when the owners objected to their taking it. And everything came to pass just as Jesus said. Now, This is the stuff of omniscience, isn't it? Stuff that God knows because he's God. Things that Jesus knew because he was God. But for John, this is not the place of triumph. This isn't the place of transformation in this story. If you only had John's gospel, you wouldn't know that the Pharisees told John to rebuke his disciples, to tell them to stop all the praise, or that Jesus responded to them by saying, if these people stop praising me, the stones will cry out. Now, John knew that Jesus could animate the stones and make them praise him, but that's not the point of transformation and triumph for John in this story. You would know from reading John's gospel that when Jesus arrived at Jerusalem, for this triumphal entry, that he wept. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. And in that weeping, his heart of compassion is on display for everyone to see. But that is not the place of transformation or triumph for John in this story. If we only had John's gospel, then the children wouldn't have sung this morning. And wouldn't that be a sad thing? Right? Because John doesn't mention the children singing and praising the Lord. It really happened. Children are important to Jesus. As we know, he welcomed them. He blessed them. But that's not the experience that brought the transformation 
and the triumph for John. All these details are important because they reflect the character of, uh, of the Lord. They show us his heart. They show us how we should stand in relation to him. But I think the elements that John includes in his gospel that are unique, that aren't mentioned in any other gospel, these are the elements that are gonna get at this place of transformation. They're gonna get at this place of triumph. So let's look at what those are. First, John is the only gospel writer that identifies the crowd. Mark simply refers to them as many. That's it. Many spread their garments and cried Hosanna. Matthew says only a multitude. That's all he, he calls them, a multitude. Luke says only they. And then later he adds multitude of disciples. But John is more specific. He tells us that this group is made up of those who had been with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead and they're coming along with Jesus to Jerusalem. There's a second group who's already in Jerusalem and those people are coming out to join this parade with Jesus. John tells us a little bit about who those Jews were. He tells us that they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now that's important because whenever the Jews celebrate Passover, there's one thing on their mind and that is deliverance, right? Because that's when, that's what Passover is all about. God instituted Passover on the very day that he delivered his people from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. What do the Jews want now? They want deliverance again. They want deliverance from Rome. They don't want to be subjugated to them any longer. We don't know if this group that went out, came out from Jerusalem, had ever met Jesus. We don't know if they've ever even seen him before. John doesn't say, but this we know, that Jesus is part of their conversation. John has already told us so. In chapter 11, verse 56, he says about these Jews in Jerusalem that they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the feast at all? So in some way, Jesus, Passover, deliverance, they're all connected in the minds of these people. Because of what they have seen of Jesus, because of what they've heard about Jesus, they have hope. They have hope, hope for deliverance in this person. And so when these Jews come out to meet Jesus, they come with the shout of Hosanna, Hosanna, which simply means it's in the command form, save, save us now. It's a prayer uttered by People who worship God that believe that now is the time of their deliverance. Lord, deliver us now. Of course, John knows now, all these years later, that the hope of deliverance was realized. You know, we probably could not count the number of people that this old man has seen delivered, delivered by Jesus. The number of people that have found freedom in Christ. And so this detail is here for us. 
It's to remind us that we should always be discussing Jesus, wondering about him, considering him, putting him in the center of our hopes and our aspirations because that's the place of transformation for us. That's the place of triumph for us when Jesus is at the center of all things. Listen, I know me. So I know you a little bit as well. And we can be independent people, right? We think we can deliver ourselves. We think we can figure it out on our own. And that's what we often attempt to do. So as we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry, it would be such a great triumph for us if truly we always kept Jesus in the the, the center of conversation, wondering what it is he might be up to, knowing from everything we know about him, everything we've seen of him, everything we've experienced, that deliverance comes from him. My help comes from the Lord. So this is true as well. As long as you or I keep Jesus on the periphery, As long as we just kind of pay him a little attention on Sunday morning. As long as we think about him a a little bit at community group. Don't be surprised if you don't experience triumph or transformation. That's not enough. And unless we make Jesus the center of all things, we're going to miss it like John did. And then we're going to be full of regret And then we're going to rewind and want to replay it. If only I had made Jesus the center of this. If only I had looked to Jesus for my deliverance. I would not have made such a mess of things. What are your hopes and aspirations anyway? And what value are they really if Jesus is not at the very center of them? The second detail that only John provides in verse 16. Look there. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So John, writing all these years later, remembers what the experience was like before he really knew and understood. And so since John is writing this, I like to read it in first person. So verse 16 becomes this. At first, I did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did I realize that these things had been written about him. John and the others, they just didn't understand what was happening. They couldn't grasp the the significance or the meaning of it. Everything John was experiencing The waving of the palm branches, the the shouts, the praise, the garments on the road. It was all happening apart from him and apart from the other 11 disciples. This is not a parade that they had planned or organized. And we know that John has a history in his life of being very restrictive in attempting to control the work of the Lord. Listen to what he said. Not very long before this event, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop 
because he is not one of us. <laughs> Isn't that great? Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. How could it be to John and the others that the work of the Lord could extend beyond the 12 of them and the work that they were doing? They couldn't conceive of it. And sometimes, if we tell the truth, and you better tell the truth, we catch ourselves with that same narrow, restrictive attitude, right? If we're not in the middle of it, it's not happening at all, right? And you and I, it's so easy for us to forget that we live in a world that's a lot bigger than us right here. You know that, don't you, right? And we live in a world that God is at work in. We serve a God whose interests are far beyond our own interests. You know that as well, don't you? Is he interested in us? Absolutely. But there is so much beyond us and beside us. And so what's happening in this moment of triumphal entry is not what John expected. It's beyond question that he and the other disciples were expecting Jesus to be a political leader. He was going to be the physical king over the nation of Israel. And that's why John came along with his brother James and mommy was with him. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we have the seat at your right and your left hand? Right? They wanted the best seats for themselves when Jesus sat on the throne. They wanted to be the top cabinet officials in Jesus' government. How does the scene before them then fit into these aspirations? This is not what they planned, what they anticipated, but here it is. People are hailing him king. But how can one seated on a colt defeat the mighty steeds of Rome? The donkey's not associated with the rigors of war. The donkey is associated with the pursuit of peace. And that's because Jesus knows who he is and he knows his mission and he knows that he is, in fact, the prince of peace. That's why he's come. To make peace between us and God. And when there's peace between us and God, then we can have peace amongst ourselves. At first, John and the other disciples didn't connect the verse from Zechariah with this event because they were not looking for fulfillment in this way. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But see, the, John and the others didn't see this. They didn't understand it. They didn't apply it because why? Because it did not fit their expectations and their preconceived ideas about who Messiah was and what he was going to do. And so John looks back. And he remembers what he and the others didn't understand at first because they had the wrong hope, the wrong vision, and the wrong expectation. So triumph looked like something quite different to them. Jesus' triumph is not going to be over Rome. It's never going to be over Rome. Israel's never going to uh, defeat Rome. In fewer than 40 years, Rome is going to crush Israel. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple is going to be completely destroyed. And John was alive when that destruction took place. And so I like to imagine 
what, Jesus, what John thought about triumph then in light of what he'd come to know about Jesus. And I wonder if John chuckled just a little bit. I don't know that he did this. A little embarrassed laugh about how glad he was that his vision was not fulfilled because he'd come to know the victory and the triumph that Jesus brought was far, far, far beyond this small, limited hope that he and his friends had for Israel. All they wanted back was their land. You know, the promised land that we've talked about in what? Deuteronomy. We're going back. We're going back. They wanted him to be king over Jerusalem. So what? How many people were there? 30,000 when there wasn't a feast going on. But Jesus' triumph was to have global implications. Jesus' triumph was going to turn the world upside down. And so writing as an old man, John realized that Jesus was stretching his imagination, right, at the triumphal entry, forcing him out of his preconceived notions. Because when we have preconceived notions, we can't see what other possibilities are. Now, I'm going to demonstrate that to you. I'm going to give you an example. You ready? you got to listen very carefully to this story, right? Here we go. One night, a king and a queen went fishing. They each caught one fish, but brought three fish home that each had caught. How? One night, a king and a queen went fishing. They each caught one fish, but there were three fish in the basket that they brought home. How? Well, some people guess, oh, there was already a fish in the basket. No, that's not the answer. There was a fish that each caught. Oh, well, there was a fish lying on that. No, no. Only fish in the basket were the fish that each had caught. What is the answer? Don't say if you know it because you're going to spoil my joke. The answer is this. Three went fishing. One night, K-N-I-G-H-T, a king and a queen. One night... Cain, a king and a queen. Now see what I mean? See, you had a preconceived idea that night was N-I-G-H-T. Never did you think it was K-N-I-G-H-T. And so you could not answer that simple question. Now, let me tell you this. If, if that is the only thing that you repeat about this sermon tomorrow, I'm quitting. All right? <laughs> Please try to trick people with that, but, but also tell them about victory in Jesus. Are we agreed? All that to say, our minds go down certain tracks, and whatever track that is, we are limited by it. And so triumph comes to us in our lives when we are always open to the new possibilities that the Lord has for us. Truth from his word that we haven't seen or understood before. You know, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you know, God himself has revealed this to you. And so this is a great spirit moment for Peter. Hey, the Lord revealed this to him. And so it's going to be all upward for Peter after that, right? Now he's going to be infallible. Wrong. Immediately after, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem, suffer in Jerusalem. He would be killed there. And the third day he would be raised. And Peter took him aside and said to Jesus, rebuking him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The things of God. How big are the things of God? How open are you to those big possibilities? What if Jesus had, Jesus had followed Peter's plan? A plan that seemed noble to Peter. Oh, okay, Peter, I won't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> Please imagine if Jesus said, okay, Peter, you win. I'll follow your plan. When we open ourselves to possibilities, the gospel can triumph through us. And that's why I'm so glad for the body of Christ, for all of you all. There are people here this morning, you pray much bigger prayers than I pray. You all see paths that I I didn't even know, just look like a bunch of weeds to me, but you see them. So together we go down that path. I love facilitating community groups. It has never failed once in all my years of doing it that someone during the course of the study doesn't make a comment where I say, I never thought of that before. I've read this passage a million times. I've never seen that before. That's what happens in community. And so God reveals his will and his work to those who are outside of the group of 12. This multitude, this multitude of people were all part of God's plan. This multitude fulfilled the prophecies of God. This multitude unmistakably identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so I hope this passage expands your view and your expectations of God. What he can and does accomplish and through whom he accomplishes those things. So we get triumph in our lives when we get our pride under control. When we realize we don't know everything. Can you say this with me? I don't know everything. All right. And spouses don't poke each other because this will be the first time you've ever heard this out of the mouth of your spouse. Honey, I'm looking at you. All right, you ready? I don't know everything. You ready? Here we go. I don't know everything. Now with conviction. <laughs> I don't know everything. We triumph when we're humble enough to know that we don't know everything. Other avenues of understanding exist, other perceptions, other hopes, other aspirations. Is that not how God is going to reach a world as diverse as ours? People as diverse as ours. Someone somewhere is going to connect with your perception. Someone is going to connect with your hope. Somewhere that realized hope is going to result in others coming to faith in Christ. And it's going to be a marvelous thing. Let's open ourselves up to these possibilities of God that we don't see. And finally, one last detail. And we're done. That John mentions. It's in the second part of verse 16. Again, I'm going to read it in the first person. Only after Jesus was glorified did I realize that the things had been written about him. I'm just saying. Seeing the glory of the Lord changes everything. It's what changed John. And that's why the glory of the Lord is so important to him. It's the theme of his gospel. It's the word he repeats over and over In the very first chapter, John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 2, Jesus does His very first miracle, turns the 
the water into wine at the wedding. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Glory, the theme of John. I can't read all the references, but you can. Chapter 8, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 21. Read them. And you will read of the glory of the Lord. And that's what John saw that changed him forever. All this happened for John after he was able to see Jesus in a different way. A glorified way. None of us, none of us in this room, we're never going to have triumph fully or transformation if we don't see the glory of the Lord. He's not just a good teacher. That's not glorious. He's God. He's not just a good person. That's not glorious. He's God. He's not just an example for us to follow. That's not glorious. He's God. That is glorious. And so do you know where to look for that glory? It's everywhere to be seen. We see the glory of the Lord in the words he speaks to us. The words of glory. So if you want to know just how glorious Jesus is, read his word. Listen to his word. You'll find glory there. If you want to see Jesus as glorious, Look at the works he does. Works of compassion and mercy. Healing, repairing, restoring broken people. There's glory there. Works of justice. Dying on the cross for our sin. Works of love. Dying on the cross for our sin. Works of hope. Raising the dead to life. Returning to life himself. If you want to see the glory of the Lord, get busy serving him. Connect to Jesus the vine and his life and his power will go through you and you will be amazed at what the Lord accomplishes through you by his power. Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Work for the Lord. You will see his glory, his power manifested in you and through you. And so here's the thing. We can have triumph today. We don't have to miss it like John did. Because you and I have this ability, we can keep Christ central in our conversations. We can do that, can't we? I know we can. We can look for how Jesus connects everything else in our lives. Passover, deliverance, Jesus. You fill in these first two blanks, but Jesus connects to all of them. And when you make that connection, there you'll find transformation. There you'll find triumph. Ask him for the deliverance. We can ask the Spirit of God to humble us, to move us beyond ourselves, to expand our thinking, to open us up to what God is doing in and through others and how that might change us. There is triumph in that place. And we can ask the Lord. We can pray this prayer. Open 
Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. There's definitely triumph. There's definitely transformation in that place for us. And so now you and I, let's do this. Let's us as transformed people now move out in triumph. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you how you inspired these individual men with different life stories and different perspectives. All to tell your story, Lord, but in a a different way from a different perspective. And we thank you for John's and how you wrote through him. And Father, we do long for, for triumph in our lives. I know we do. There's so many people here in this room that are seeking deliverance from all sorts of different things. Truly, Lord, they, we want to be free in you. We want to find our deliverance in you. So Father, keep us faithful to do the things we know to do, to keep you very central in our lives. The focus of our lives, of our conversations, far beyond this hour, far beyond the hour of community group. Father, humble us. We pray that you would humble us. And that we would just not speak the words that we don't know everything, but we would believe that in our heart. And Lord, that you would make us people who are gracious and open to the big possibilities that exist with that simple phrase, the things of God, they are so big, Lord. And I pray that you would make us humble enough to look for them and to want to be part of them, even when we are not part of what's going on. And Lord, we need to see your glory. Pray that you would do things, special things for us that really display your glory. You've already done enough. Lord, we, we shouldn't ask for one more thing because you've given us so much. We've seen all we need to see of you. We've heard all we need to hear. But Lord, in this time, in this place, I pray that in a special way, you would be revealing your glory to us through your words and your actions. And Lord, as we seek to connect with you and work for you, I pray that you would amaze us by your, the glorious things that you do so that those things will be marvelous in our sight. Help us to live in triumph and transformation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.